You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Isaiah 5, 1-7 Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but yet it it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they they rain no rain upon it. For the the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the, the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the word of the Lord. You would also turn with me in the New Testament to Matthew, Matthew 21, verses 28 to 46. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, You did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he said his, sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, 
They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, we come to your word. We come to your word to see Christ, to marvel at Christ, to to behold Christ, to, to worship Christ, to be transformed by Christ to obey Christ, that that we might point to Christ. So God, I pray that now, that that now you would turn our hearts to long for him, to delight in him, to see him. Open our eyes that we might behold marvelous things in your word. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. We live in an age that is increasingly insane. It's increasingly insane because it's increasingly obsessed with the self. Discovering the self, self care, self knowledge, self cultivation, knowing everything about ourselves, the endless Enneagram tests and Myers Briggs tests and the endless kind of studying or doing a deep dive into every feeling, every um, kind of wind of anxiety or fear or anger or sadness or happiness, Um, there is in our culture an obsession with the self. Um, And while the Bible would hold out there is wisdom in knowing thyself, um, the, the, the Bible overwhelms us with the call to look out and see something else. To be a people who are interested, a people who who look to and see and behold and marvel at something big and glorious and beautiful and not me. And this is what we're aiming to do over the next, well, last week, this week, and then the coming week. That we would look away from ourselves, that we'd look away from and take a break from, um, that this obsession with knowing thyself, and that we might look out and see and behold the most glorious, the most sovereign, the most holy, the most beautiful man who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. That we would see him and marvel at him, be transformed by him. So last week we examined the Gospel of Mark, looking at kind of the whole scope of the Gospel of Mark and then focusing in on his accounting of Jesus' triumphal entry. And what we saw in Mark is um, he, he, he portrayed Jesus for us um, as the coming king who, and then whispered, who was God. That over and over again in Mark, he proclaims that here is the, the arrival of the kingdom of God, that standing before us is the Lord, the King, the one who reigns and bears all authority in heaven and on earth. And then whispers, hints at, um, tips his hat towards the revelation, but this is more than just an earthly king. This is God himself, this is Yahweh, this is the Lord coming in this king. And today, we want to turn our attention to the, the gospel of Matthew, 
And, and listen, both, again, um, looking at the whole scope of Matthew and what Matthew is about and then zeroing in on um, uh, subsequent to the triumphal entry of Jesus, Jesus began to tell stories. And these stories reveal something about who he is and what he has come to do. And so we want to look and see and, again, be utterly preoccupied with the question, who is this Jesus? And so we're going to look to Matthew, and particularly uh, Matthew 21 and these stories. Um, so I want to get in front of us kind of again, um, the whole scope of Matthew. How, uh, we, it's, it's hard to kind of step into um, the stream of Scripture. We can't just jump into chapter 21 without accounting for what Matthew is up to in his larger project, or how is he describing Jesus? How would he have us see and look at, and what, what, what would he have us notice about Jesus? So a couple of things to note about Matthew as we get into it. I'm going to make three observations and then um, a point of application as we step into our text today. Um, first, Matthew is clearly written for a Jewish audience. Um, Mark is not. Mark explains all of kind of um, his Hebraisms, his uh, references to particularly to Jewish culture. Um, uh, Mark tends to include explanations. Luke as well. But both of those Gospels, we believe, were written for Gentile or Roman audiences. Um, Matthew is different. Matthew assumes um, that, that the most, the, most of his audience are Jews. They know about Jewish culture. They know the Jewish story. They know the Hebrew scriptures. Um, that, that his audience is primarily preoccupied with um, the Old Testament and, and the promises of the Old Testament and where the Old Testament was headed. Um, and then in light of that, uh, Matthew does a handful of things that, that if you're not paying attention, you won't see. And, and the first thing I want to point out to you, among many, but, but I just want to point out a couple of these to you, um, is the way that Matthew begins his gospel. Flip over with me to Matthew chapter 1. I'm not hearing enough pages turning. Everyone's ignoring me. Or turning your phone, I guess. It's been a week. But anyway, <clears throat> Matthew 1 1 begins with this the book of the genealogy, or the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Um, this is a, uh, a reference to Genesis 1 1 in the beginning. It's also a reference to two other texts in Genesis. Um, Genesis 2-4 and, uh, again, um, chapter 5. Um, their uh, genealogies are put in place. Um, but but the, the beginning of Matthew is meant to hearken back for us um, to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis um, chapter 1. It's to draw us back into the story of Scripture itself, the story of Israel, the creation of the world. And in one sense, that's one of the things that Matthew is going to be pointing at. Um, it's actually a common theme in the Gospels, but we're going to see this next week in, in John's account of the resurrection. Um, that, that one of the things that Matthew was announcing to us is that in the coming of Jesus Christ, uh, new creation is beginning. Uh, God is actually in a project, not, not just to save sinners out of the world, but to actually remake to renew, to restore all of creation. And so he begins his gospel account uh, by, by going back and giving us clues and telling us um, this is a brand new beginning. But what's fascinating about Matthew is how he ends. 
You see, if Matthew begins back in Genesis chapter 1 by, by hearkening back to the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, he ends by drawing our attention to the very end of the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, in our English translations of the Bible, um, our Old Testament ends in Malachi. But in the Hebrew Bible, um, the, the, the last books of the Hebrew Bible are Second Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And this is the end of the Old Testament Scriptures. And what's fascinating about the end of Second Chronicles um, is what you see there is an announcement from Cyrus. Um, Cyrus, who's called by Isaiah, the anointed one, a, a, a Messiah. He comes and he announces that the God of heaven had given him rule or authority over all of the known earth. And then he commissions the people of God to go. That they should return to the land that God had given them. Now where does Matthew end? He ends with Jesus announcing that God his Father had given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And he then commissions his disciples, he commissions his people then to go. To go into all the earth, all the land that the Lord has given them. And so what is Matthew doing? What what, what should we see here about the story of Matthew? Matthew wants us to see that the story of Jesus is the story of Israel. It's fascinating, too, as you move from chapter 1 in Matthew's gospel to chapter 2, you move from Genesis to Exodus. In in Matthew chapter 2, you have um, uh, a Pharaoh um, who who sins about killing um, all the male children. We have Jesus, interestingly, um, fleeing from Egypt, a new Egypt, that Israel had become a new Pharaoh named Herod into Egypt. You see, what Matthew is doing as he points us to the person of Jesus um, is, he's, um, is he's essentially saying, hey, the whole story of God's people, the whole story of Israel is summarized, it's contained, it points to ultimately its fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. He is the true Israelite. He is the centerpiece of the covenant people of God. He is the climax the coming of the people of God. So we have Matthew built on the whole framework of the Old Testament. Another thing, Matthew, um, if you had like a red letter copy of the Bible, um, you, you, if you go to Matthew, you'd see there's lots and lots and lots of Jesus talking, of Jesus preaching. Um, in fact, the Gospel of Matthew is built around five discourses, five speeches, five sermons that Jesus gives um, in his ministry. It's fascinating that too, then you look back and you realize that Moses himself um, has, has built the foundations of the Old Testament, the foundation of the, um, the word of God spoken to the people of God around five books, five discourses, five announcements. So the book of Matthew is the story of the Old Testament, which means that Jesus, the story of Jesus, is the story of Israel. It's the story of the Old Testament. Second thing, um, it, it behooves us to study a little bit closer. Do you like how I use the word behooves? I do. Um, it behooves us to study a little bit closer the nature of the genealogies, the, the, um, the, the nature of the genealogies in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 5. And so in Matthew chapter 1, um, Matthew is quoting um, verbatim uh, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 5 which interestingly are genealogies, but they're genealogies 
um, that begin with the father um, and then flow to the children. So in Genesis chapter 5, it begins with the father and then announces and shows or unfolds for, um, for us um, the descendants from the source. In Genesis chapter 2, you have an interesting genealogy because it doesn't look like a genealogy. But it uses this language, the, the genesis of, the generations of, the heavens and the earth. Um, uh, essentially portraying the heavens and the earth um, as the parents, the father, um, of everything that comes after it. Whether it's birds of the air, um, or living plants, or living things, or Adam and Eve themselves. In other words, the way that this language is used in Genesis actually shows us something I think is unbelievable about Jesus. You see, as Matthew kind of unfolds for us um, his genealogy in Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't begin with Abraham and show Jesus to be the son of Abraham. He begins with Jesus and shows that Abraham is the son of Jesus. He doesn't show or demonstrate for us um, how Jesus is the son of David. He demonstrates, us, demonstrates for us how David is the son of Jesus. You see, for Matthew, Jesus is not simply the climax of Israel's history. It's not just the climax of what God has been up to um, throughout the whole history of Israel. He is the source. He's the center. Everything comes from him. There is no Israel without Jesus. There is no Abraham without Jesus. There is no David without Jesus. He's not simply the end. He's not just um, simply kind of the echo of the realities of Abraham and David and Solomon and the prophets. No, he is the substance and they were echoes. What Matthew wants us to see is the very center of the whole history of the world, the absolute center of all the stories of the Old Testament. Their source is Jesus. He is both the roots of the tree and the fruit the whole tree was aiming at. He was the seed and he was the fruit. He was the beginning and he was the goal. Jesus is Abraham's Father, as Jesus himself says, before Abraham was, I am. See, Matthew wants to portray for us the story of Jesus is the story of Israel. Jesus is not simply the climax of Israel's history. He's not just the climax of where everything was headed in the Old Testament. He was its source as well. So with that kind of laid out for us, that for Israel to have an identity, it must be grounded in, it is only grounded in, the person and the work of Jesus. Um, as we consider the fact that this, the, the, the whole framework for the Gospel of Matthew is in fact the history of Israel itself. When we arrive at chapters 20, 21, 22, we arrive at a particular moment in the history of Israel, the story of Israel. It's actually a, a moment in the history of Israel that we've uh, just kind of walked through. We, we went through the, um, the book of Nehemiah together as a church um, leading into this season. Um, and the, the whole season of Nehemiah was, uh, is kind of the, 
the, the, the back end of the season that, that marks uh, Matthew 20, 21, and 22. You see in the history of Israel, um, as Elijah and Elisha are kind of the front end of this season, um, what, what happens is Israel itself uh, begins to, to come unglued. It, it starts to get divided. And the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, it's actually carried through in Isaiah and Jeremiah as well, um, is to announce that there is an Israel within Israel. That there is a people within the people. That there are those who are faithful. There are those who are bearing the fruit of the kingdom of God. There are those who are actually inheriting all the promises of God. And even as you look around and you behold unfaithfulness, as you behold those who, who aren't obeying the law, who no longer worship Yahweh, or begun to worship other gods alongside of Yahweh, um, the, the promise comes to Elijah and Elisha and the other prophets that God is saving for himself or separating for himself a people who will bear the fruits of the kingdom of God. So we arrive in, in, in Matthew 21, in 22, we're arriving at that particular moment in the history of Israel. Israel is being divided. It's being sifted. It's being judged. Judgment in the Bible is always a division. Division between the righteous and the unrighteous. Division between good and evil. Division between those who will bear the fruit, those who won't. So that's where we've arrived so then once we get to chapter 21, um, chapter 21 opens with the story that we looked at last week. Jesus entering into the temple, and it ends with the story of the fig tree, um, just as we saw last week. But I want to draw your attention to one thing, because one thing um, from last week is also in this text today, and it kind of sets um, the, the, the agenda for where we're going to go um, as we look at these two stories or parables that Jesus tells. If you remember at the end of the, the, the story of the fig tree, after Jesus curses the fig tree for not bearing fruit, um, and the, the disciples say to Jesus, how did this happen? Um, in verse 20, Jesus says to them in verse 21, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will, you, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. We talked about last week that he is in proximity to the Temple Mountain. So when he says this mountain, he's not talking about Mount Evans or I think of a 14er I've climbed and wanted it to be thrown into the sea. He's talking about the Temple Mountain. So he's looking out at the Temple, the Temple as the place where Israel was promised that they would meet with God, that they would worship God, that they'd be instructed by God, that they would commune with God, this place where they would go and receive the forgiveness of sins, um, the temple. And he says, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, saying to his disciples, that this mountain should be thrown into the sea. Now here's a little tidbit that we didn't talk about last week. Um, within kind of Jewish culture, within Jewish imagery, the sea always represents the nations. I mean, it wasn't just kind of like, let's just get rid of this mountain. It's actually something actually far more profound than that. That, that, that. If you pray and you ask that this mountain, this place where the people of God gather, the place where the presence of God dwells, the place where the forgiveness of sins is to be found, if you say to this mountain that it should be thrown into or among the nations, 
it will happen. You see what he's promising the disciples. You see it. I mean, as an aside, isn't the Bible like unbelievable? Like it's amazing to me. But in case you didn't see it, Jesus is saying that no longer will the place where men and women come into the presence of God and confess their sins to God and are reconciled to God and have their sins forgiven by God. I'm no longer will the place where they're instructed by God and bring their offerings before God and worship in the presence of God. No longer will it merely be on this particular geographical mountain. It will now be spread among all the nations of the earth. Now you don't have to go to Jerusalem to abide with God and worship God. No, you simply gather with the people of God. In Denver, Colorado, I mean mostly Denver, Colorado, you gather with the people of God and here, you gather in his presence, really in his presence. You really have your sins forgiven. You really bring your offerings and commune with him and worship in his presence. You really are as long as I do my job well, instructed in the law of God and the instructions of God and the word of God. You really sit and share in the offerings as God feeds his people bread and wine. In other words, what the disciples were instructed to pray for, that that particular mountain be cast in and thrown among the nations. What's happened? So with that kind of as the heading, we move into two stories. Both stories have to do with a vineyard. What's fascinating about the vineyard is the vineyard is a symbol that carries over. We read that passage from Isaiah chapter 5. Um, the vineyard is a symbol, it's a marker, it points to um, the fact that Israel was the vineyard of the Lord. What's fascinating um, is the temple. And Jesus, by the way, is giving... Um, we have no reason to believe that Jesus has left the temple here. Um, that, that he's actually giving this speech in the, um, in, at least in the context of the temple itself. The temple was designed architecturally to look like a vineyard. It was to be, um, um, as Israel gathered for worship in the presence of God, um, they gathered in the vineyard, were reminded that they themselves were the vineyard of the Lord. And so as Jesus tells these stories, these two stories about a vineyard, this isn't just some sort of metaphor. He's actually talking about telling, retelling the story of Israel, telling the story about the people of God, telling the story about the temple. And undergirding his references to the vineyard um, is kind of a, a, a presupposed idea about how humanity was supposed to work. In other words, not only is he telling a story about Israel, not only is he telling a story about the temple, he's telling a story about all of us. You see, the design of the world is that we were to commune with God in his vineyard, his garden. We were to worship him, we were to um, commune with him, we were to know him, we were to be instructed by him and given commands by him, just as Adam and Eve were in the garden. And in doing so, we were then to go out into the world and bear the fruits of um, our communion with him in the vineyard. 
In other words, the worship of God um, is not simply some sort of thing tacked onto um, what it means to be human. It's absolutely essential and central to what it means to be a man or a woman. It's not tacked onto your work life. It actually is meant to be the ground, the center out of which all the work you do day in and day out, nine to five, um, Monday through Friday, is meant to flow. It wasn't meant to be a thing that kind of uh, maybe helps along or is tacked alongside your marriage. It was meant to be the grounds of your marriage, that, that, that healthy marriages, a husband who loves his wife and leads his wife and washes his wife in the word, um, uh, wives that love their husbands, um, that this, this kind of marriage was meant to grow out of or be the fruit of our worship of God, our communion with God, as we gather in the garden week after week after week in his presence to commune with him, bring offerings to him, to be instructed by him in his word. Like raising children that are godly, that are fruitful, that are good, that are just. Um, the, the church and, and the worship of God wasn't meant to be just kind of like a, an accelerator program for that. Or like, hey, come get your vitamins at church so you can go do this thing. Or raising godly children, raising children that know and fear the Lord, um, raising children that are um, marked by justice and righteousness and goodness and faithfulness and integrity. What was meant to be the fruit of, meant to grow out from, the people of God gathering in the vineyard, worshiping God, communing with God, being instructed by God in his word, and they being sent out that they might bear the fruits of what would come from the vineyard. This was the design of God for the world. It's the design of God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. As God reestablishes the garden in Israel, in the temple, and the people of God were to gather in the temple, in the garden to commune with God, and to go out that their work life, that their marriages, that their children would be fruits unto God, belonging to God, honoring God, reflecting what they'd seen and known and communed with in the garden, in the temple, in the tabernacle, with him. So, the background for this story about two sons, the background for this story about the tenants, the wicked tenants in the vineyard, again, is not simply kind of some idiosyncratic um, Israelite history. It is, in fact, him telling us the problem with the world, the story of the world. So his first story. First story is about two sons. The first son is instructed by the father that he's supposed to go and work in the vineyard. The son answers his father, I will not. I don't know if you've ever had a son look at you and you say, they got the trash. He looks at you and says, I will not. It's an indicator for those of you, maybe who are younger fathers, that things aren't going well. And they're probably going to get worse. (laughs) So Jesus tells the story. Two sons, the first son, his father comes to him and says, I want you to take out the trash. I want you to go to the vineyard and work in the vineyard. The son looks at his dad, says, no, not doing it. Not going to go work in the vineyard. Not going to cause the vineyard to bear fruit. 
But then he does it. Goes and he works in the vineyard. It's like if I came to my son, not that this would ever happen, ever. And I said, Hayes, you're taking out the trash. Hayes would look at me and say, no, never happened. <clears throat> then I fall asleep on the couch because it's a Sunday afternoon. Maybe it's a Saturday afternoon. So we want to take out the trash on Sabbath. So take out the trash on Saturday. I wake up. Guess what happened? He took out the trash. It'd be good, right? It'd be better than him saying no than not taking out the trash. Still not the best. That's what the first son does. The second son. Father comes to him. This is, for those of you who have children, might know this story. Not that I do, but um, go to your children and you say, Daughter, would you please put away these towels? She looks and says, great joy. Yes, we'd love to put away those towels. Then you go about your next project. You come back the next day. There the towels are, still sitting in the middle of the floor between the stairs and your office where you will trip over them. Not that that's ever happened, but... So those are the two sons. One son doesn't um, respond to the father's commands. And then in the end comes back around and does what the father commands by going into the vineyard, working the vineyard. The other son says, yes, I'll definitely do what you've told me to do. I'll go into the vineyard. I'll work the vineyard. And he doesn't ever go into the vineyard. And Jesus asks The question. Got to find the question. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said the first. And then Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. This is fascinating. Remember, the context here is the division of Israel. Context here is the question, who belongs to God? Who will inherit the promises of God? Who will inherit the kingdom of God? All the blessed promises of God, who do they belong to? And he says, there's two sons. You guys, you Pharisees, not you Pharisees, but you Pharisees, you scribes, the law comes to you, commands you. You listen to it, and you say, I'll do it. Then you don't. John shows up, and you don't believe him. I show up, and you don't believe me. Whereas, The prostitutes, the tax collectors, they haven't done what God commands them to do. The law comes and they've run from it. They've refused to do it. But John comes announcing and calling for repentance from sin. I come announcing the kingdom of God. 
And they believe. They do it. In other words, the promises of God, the blessings of God, the forgiveness of sins, the the fullness of the blessings of God, they don't belong to those who say yes, try to do the right thing, kind of navigate a world um, where they are the righteous ones. No, it belongs to those who cling to, who believe in, who cry out for the mercy of Jesus. It's the first story. The second story. The second story is a story of a vineyard. The owner of the vineyard goes away, gives the vineyard to tenants, Imagine here again the story of the world. Um, The vineyard is the garden. It's given to tenants, you and me. It's given to tenants, Israel. They're supposed to work the garden. They're supposed to worship God in the garden. And that's supposed to um, bear fruit. It will belong to the owner of the vineyard. Um, You're supposed to worship God. That should produce fruit in your marriage, fruit in your work, fruit of children. And all of it is to belong to Jesus. All of it is to drive you to worship God, to worship the owner of the vineyard. But instead, these tenants say, no, this is ours. We're going to keep the gifts of God we're going to keep things like drink and sex, relationships and money and children and food. We're going to keep these things for ourselves. They are ours. So the owner of the vineyard sends servants, and he sends more servants. We beat them, and we ignored them, and we mocked them, and we killed them. So Jesus is talking to Israelites, and he's telling them their own story. God gave you the vineyard, sitting in it, standing here in it. You claimed it for yourselves. So he sent servants. He sent Moses. He sent David. He sent Solomon. He sent Jeremiah. He sent Isaiah. He sent Nehemiah. He sent Ezra. He sent Malachi. He sent Zechariah. He sent servant after servant after servant after servant, you ignored them and you mocked them and you beat them and you killed them and you threw them in pits like Jeremiah. Um, You you tried to find ways to kill them. You you wanted nothing to do with them. Um, The God of the universe came again in his mercy. He came again in his mercy. He came again and he came again and he came again and he came again pleading with you, calling to you, repent. You killed and you mocked you ignored. And Jesus says, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. 
When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir, come, let us kill him. We'll have his inheritance. They took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. If you can imagine right now, lots of people in the temple courts. Jesus across from the priests and the Pharisees. And Jesus tells this story. Can you imagine? I think the crowd was silent. This gospel and the other gospels tell us that um, it's this story and telling this story in public that gets Jesus killed. If you want to know the historic reasons why he died. Why do the chief priests and the Pharisees, why does everyone get together and say Jesus must die? It's because of this story. He gets to this moment telling a story about them killing servants, about them beating servants, about them ignoring servants. And then he tells his own story. Um, The father has now sent the son. You're going to kill me. And then he says this. (laughs) When the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you think he's going to do to the tenants? Might be taking a little bit of liberty. I like to imagine a pause there. Crowd, Jesus, just told this story, just told them they're about to kill him, the son who has come, and then looks at them and says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when he gets here? What do you think he's going to do? He's come again and again and again, he sent word after servant, after servant, after servant, after prophet, after king, after teacher, calling you to himself. But you, you're killing his son. What do you think he's going to do? He gives this answer. He will put those wretches (laughs) to a miserable death. I mean, sometimes Jesus just lacks tact. What is he going to do? Well, he's going to take some of you, try to be disciplining with you. No, he's going to put those wretches to death. A miserable death, not a nice death. And he's going to let out or give the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. I'm going to take this mountain and throw it into the sea. I'm going to take this place of blessedness, 
this place of instruction, this place of communion with God, this place of the forgiveness of sins, this place where men and women can dwell and eat, be fed by God in the presence of God, where they can know the living God and it bear fruit into every part of their lives. I'm going to take this mountain and I'm going to throw it into the midst of the nations and it will go everywhere. Which is exactly what he's done. I'm going to end with this question. How does Jesus answer the question then? Who will inherit this mountain? If you're in this room, how do you know you get to inherit this mountain? How do you know that you are these new tenants, these other tenants who will bear fruit? Well, Jesus tells us in a kind of cryptic way, cryptic, a cryptic but stunning way. He quotes Psalm 118 here in verse 42. He says, have you never heard, read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He quotes here from Psalm 118, essentially saying, I am the stone, the stone on which the temple, I'm the place of communion with God, the place that the vineyard itself will be built. I am that chief cornerstone on which all of this is being built. And as that stone, how do you know that they're going to bear the fruits of the kingdom? Does this stone fall on you or do you fall on him? Oh, if he falls on you in judgment, you will be crushed. If you revile him, if you hate him, if you refuse to obey him and submit to him and trust in him and he falls on you in judgment, you will know nothing but wrath forever and ever and ever. But oh, if you fall on him, if you will fall upon his mercy, oh, you'll be broken. But it will be a glorious breaking. A breaking marked by mercy. Breaking that, that, that makes one whole. Oh, oh, don't treat the mercy of God as a light thing. We come to Jesus and we die. We come to Jesus and we are forgiven of our sins. We come to Jesus and we receive a new Lord. We come to Jesus and we die and are made alive in him. Oh, do not let this stone fall on you in wrath. Instead, cast yourself on him. Be broken. And in your breaking, be made whole. Who are the tenants who receive the kingdom of God, who will bear the fruits of God in the world? It is those who are broken on the rock of Jesus. 
and are not crushed by him. Let's pray. So we fall on Jesus. He alone is our hope. He alone is our salvation. He alone is our forgiveness. He alone is our King and our God. We fall on him. So Father, in your mercy, feed us and make us whole and cause us by your spirit to bear the fruits of righteousness, to bear the fruits of your vineyard. In your name we pray, amen.